Good evening, everyone. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, Senior Pastor here at St. Philip the Deacon. It's good to have you all here. Welcome to the uh, continuing uh, 21st season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. Um, whether you're here in person in the sanctuary or joining us online, we are delighted to have you here. Um, those of you who are in the house, if I could ask, uh, is, it, is this the first Faith and Life event for any of you? Okay, great, a number of you. So a special welcome to you. A uh, special welcome to those of you joining us online for the first time as well. Um, I'm gonna just sort of explain the flow here a bit, and uh, that will be that after I'm done introducing her, our speaker will come up. Uh, she'll speak for 40 or 45 minutes or so. After that, I'll have a, a few announcements, but then I would love for all of you to ask her questions. So if you're in the house, we have mics to my right and my left, and we'd like you to come up and ask them at the microphone. If you are watching this online, uh, there should be a box immediately below the live stream where you can type your questions or you can also email questions to the following email address, social at spdlc.org social at spdlc.org. And we invite, again, your questions for that portion of the evening. Um, also importantly, for those of you in the house, I hope all of you, this is a first for Faith and Life, I hope as you entered you got a tongue depressor and a marker. I have no idea why you need those, but all will be made clear eventually. So if you don't have one of those, uh, raise your hand and one of our ushers will uh, grab you one. So for 21 years now, this uh, lecture series has been bringing people from not only around the country, but from around the world. They are artists, they're musicians, they're authors, they're politicians. Well, we had one politician once, actually. Um, we've never done that again. Um, uh, they've been doctors, academics, theologians, bloggers, and on and on and on. Uh, the common denominator for all of them is that they're Christian and they come into this space to speak about how their faith in, impacts what they do or how they live. Tonight we are privileged to have someone who grew up in the foster care uh, system, uh, who's grown up to be an amazing success story. She's a renowned speaker. She's the best-selling author of a book, which of course I forgot to bring up here, but we'll show it later. It is available for sale. The book is called Fostered. Um, if you look at that book, if you have the book in the bio in the back, you will see that she was named Mrs. Universe in 2021. So that's kind of a big deal. And um, she's also, by the way, doing her first ever major conference this coming Saturday for women in Ohio. So if any of you wanna make a drive to Ohio, you can talk to her about that afterwards. I assume there are still tickets. Uh, if you've come to these events before, you will also know that I always ask our speakers for uh, something a little off the beaten path in terms of their bio that I can share with the audience as I introduce them. I did just ask her that question half hour ago or so, and she struggled for a bit to think of something, but then she said, well, you know, I have actually thought about whether I could start a business being contracted to help people get on the dance floor at weddings. <laughs> so, uh, I don't think she's gonna do that tonight, but that's something you didn't know about her until tonight. We are so glad she is here. Will you help me welcome Tori Hope Peterson. We will not dance tonight, but we might do something a little bit more intimidating with these. So maybe you guys should just mentally prepare. Not, not a dance, but it's still gonna be a little, a little out there. Um, the 
the title of a lecture was like a little intimidating. Um, I'm not a lecturer. Um, I, I would say that I'm a storyteller. So can I tell you guys a story? Thank you, because I didn't have a backup plan. I had it all written here, so that's good. I first went into the foster care system when I was three years old. There were uniformed men who busted through our front door, and they started to take just bags down from, from different places that my mom hid what was her business. And then a really sweet woman came. She picked me up off the floor, and she said, we're just going to go somewhere for a little while. And so I went and sat at the bottom of this SWAT truck, um, a, a metal floor, and it drove me to the human services office. And then another nice woman uh, drove me to my first ever foster home. And when I was living in that foster home, I wanted to be back with my biological mom. You know, when you are so young, you don't have a concept of what you're going through is hard or dysfunctional or bad at all. Something that my mom always told me was that she loved me. My mom named me Victoria Hope is my full name. And she said that she prayed that there would be victory and hope over my life. And she said that from the time that I was a really little girl. And so I just wanted to be back with my mom. I really did believe that my mom loved me, that she was loving. And so the foster care system, it fulfilled one of its purposes. I was actually, which is reunification. So I was reunified with my biological mom. I think about six months later, that's what the story that she tells me. Uh, but then as time went on, as my mom got older, her mental illness got worse. And she became more and more abusive. And so I went into the foster care system again for the second time, this time with my sister, who was nine and a half years younger than me. And we went into the foster care system. The, the system got involved two days uh, before Christmas. So Christmas Eve Eve. And there was this nice woman in our community, in our town. Her name was Tanya. And she would come and pick me and my sister up every Wednesday. She would feed us at her house, and she would take us to church every Wednesday. And sometimes when things would get really bad, I would take my flip phone, and I would text her. And I would ask her to come pick us up. And um, sometimes we would spend the days with her outside of Wednesday. But two days uh, before Christmas, she called Human Services and she said, can you not put them in the foster care system? Uh, can you wait? Can they spend some time with us? Can they, can they spend Christmas with us? Because she didn't want us to go with a family that you know, maybe just didn't know us, that didn't have presents for us, that wasn't prepared for two more kids right before Christmas. And so we went and spent uh, Christmas with Tanya. And I want you guys to imagine like this whole stage, this whole platform, filled with presents. That's how many presents we had. That's how many presents Tanya somehow got for us in two days. And Tanya also had biological children, and they had like this many presents, maybe like filled the podium. <laughs> and I, I didn't feel bad for them because I didn't have empathy. I was just so excited for my presents. And so I open up all these presents, and you know, they have like the great value sticker on it, so like the Walmart sticker. So I know where they're from, and I was like, Tanya, can we go to, it's the day of Christmas, I said, can we go to Walmart tomorrow and can we return all these presents so that I can get gift cards and go on a shopping spree? So Tanya said yes, and the next day, the day after Christmas, everyone knows what the Walmart return line looks like the day after Christmas. <laughs> and we stood in this long line and I returned everything and then had my Walmart shopping spree. 
I want you guys to remember that story, but don't hate me so much that you stop listening to me. Just put a pin in it. So I went to the foster care system, you know, after we put the Christmas tree away when New Year's came around. And I went to the foster care system with my sister. And in that first home, my feeling is very different than the, the first time around. The second time around, I thought, this is our chance to escape the abuse. This is our chance to escape the chaos that was happening in our home. Things got really hard. And so I was actually really excited to go into the foster care system. Like, we're going to have a family. We're going to be here for good. But within about three weeks of being there, my sister was abused. I reported it, and I was deemed a liar. And so I was separated from my sister, and I went to go live in what's called a residential group home. I was so angry that I was placed in this home because to be placed in this home, you, it, you had to have qualifications, and those qualifications were um, high behavioral issues um, or mental illness. And I'd never been diagnosed or deemed with either of those. And so I was really angry. I lived with nine other young women and I thought, I'm better than them. I don't want to live here. And then we went to an alternative school. So um, I also, I was, I was really angry because I was a 4.0 student. I really cared about my grades. Something that, you know, my mom, she's such a complex human being. She, like I said, she loved me a lot. Um, she was obviously abusive, and she caused a lot of hurt in my life, but also, my mom really valued achievement, and she always said that she wanted me to accomplish a lot. She always said that there was a purpose for my life. She always said that I could do big things. You know, she put that in my head from a very young age, and so I really cared about my grades. I applied myself in school, and so I was going to this alternative school. I was mad that I was going there, because I was like, I get good grades, but then the alternative school, they offered us therapy twice a week. And it was mandated. And so I started to go to therapy twice a week. And what happened was I kept looking back. I kept looking back on my life and I could see that I actually did have a lot of things that I needed to work through, that there was a lot of hurt and pain and trauma that I wasn't aware of. And as I kept looking back, I also could see that there was something or someone that was always there protecting me, looking over me, just someone that was there like encouraging me. Um, when I was 12 years old, I spent some time in jail. Has anybody else here ever been in jail? Just me. Great. <laughs> We're in good company. Spent 18 days in a juvenile detention center, and you know there are those ministries. They go make sure that um, juvenile detention centers and jails have Bibles. And so I had a Bible in my cell. And you know when you get in trouble in juvie or anything, they take out your mattress, which is really like a gymnastics mat half of, of a gymnastics mat. And they take out any, we had like books from the, the juvenile detention center library. So they take all that out, but the only thing you can keep in your cell when you get everything taken out, when you get in trouble, is your Bible. So I got in trouble, and I was like, well, this is all I got. I gotta like sit here all day, locked in here, so I might as well like open it up. And I remember, I remember reading Colossians, and I didn't know what a Colossian was, or what that meant, but I did know that Paul was in jail, and I was in jail, so I was like, I'm like Paul, and I would go out, and I would tell the girls, I would go, we, when I got un in trouble, I would go out, and I would tell the girls, I'd be like, we're like Paul, and I would encourage the girls with this scripture, and I had no idea, you know, I had no idea what I was saying or what I was talking about, but it did encourage me, and so I knew, you know, there was always something there um, along the way as I was going through therapy. 
Throughout my entire time in foster care, I moved throughout 12 homes total for many different reasons. Sometimes I didn't follow rules, sometimes it wasn't a good fit. In the foster care system, uh, a lot of times, foster parents enter into, into foster care because they want to adopt. And a lot of times they want to adopt younger kids, not older kids. And I was in the foster care system as a teenager. So I'd be living with the family. And even if things are going really well, if little kids came in, there was a few times that you know, they would want to establish their adoptive family. So I would have to move. And so there was this narrative in my head that I wasn't loved. I was, uh, they labeled me unadoptable. Uh, so this narrative in my head that I wasn't wanted. And it was really, really hard for me. Uh, when I was 18, I chose to emancipate out of the foster care system because I'd felt so burned by the foster care system. Um, I was living with, before I emancipated, I was living with a woman named Gina. And she was my favorite foster mom. And I was so sad that I had to, you know, when you emancipate, the, and rules are different county to county. Foster care is such a tricky thing. But in our county, if you emancipate, you can no longer live with your foster parent. And I didn't want to be a part of the system anymore, so I had to move. But I was so sad because Gina was my favorite, favorite foster parent. She sacrificed a lot for me, and she took me. She was one of my first foster parents that was taking me to church consistently every week again. And I had a lot of questions about God. I was kind of actually pretty, pretty angry at God because I had two questions for him. I thought, why have I went through so much suffering, and why are there other kids who are way more innocent than me, who have been through way more suffering than me. I remember the girls, you know, that I was in this group home with, and so many, you know, we would be in group therapy together, and I would hear what they'd gone through, and they were younger than me, and I was like, how can God be good, but people go through so much suffering? And then my other question was, if God is so good, then why did he give me a dad? Because maybe if I had a dad, he would have, he would have protected me. He, I would have had a dad, and I wouldn't have went into the foster care system. I could have lived with him. And I asked Gina these questions, and I remember sitting on her bed and just being so angry. And she said, I don't know. And it was the first time I'd ever heard a Christian not preach at me and say, I don't know. And I remember that day, my heart softened more than ever before. And she said, but we're going to figure it out together. And so we started doing devotions every night on her bed. And she just kept telling me about Jesus. And eventually, what I learned, what I, I kind of thought, was that I, I went through suffering because we, as Christians, are meant to reflect Christ. And Christ suffered. But in his suffering, there was great glory. And it was for love. And so we can rest assured that our suffering will not be wasted, that God will be glorified. And then I was in church, and we were singing the song. It's called Good, Good Father. And it just clicked. I realized that God was my father. He was there all along. He was that something that I was questioning and wondering about that was there, that was that encouraging voice, that was always with me, protecting me, and loving me. He was the father that I'd always wanted, and he filled all the gaps that an earthly father actually never could have. In between my junior and senior year, I had a track coach who, he told me we were training um, in the summer. I was okay at track. Um, I really, I loved track. It was kind of like my escape to get out of my foster home. 
And my track coach said, Tori, I think you can go into the state track meet and I think you can win it. Like I said, I was okay. So like that was kind of, it. I was going into my senior year, I only had one more year. I'd never even been in the state track meet in an individual race. So if, if you don't know like running track, kind of like the normal, typical progression to winning state would be your first year you go and you probably don't make it to finals. And then your second year you make it to finals and then your third year you place higher and then your fourth year, you know, your senior year you win. And I'd never even been in the state track meet. But he added a little caveat and he said, if you do everything I say. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna do everything this crazy old man says. And then if it doesn't work out, it's his fault because it was his crazy idea, not mine. And I'm gonna do everything he says. So we started to train together and I really did. I did everything he said. He gave me a diet. Um, he helped me start eating healthier. He told me I needed to get like a certain amount of sleep every night. He was like, as an athlete, you need to get like nine to 10 hours of sleep every night. Like I never got nine to 10 hours of sleep. And now as a mom, I never get nine to 10 hours of sleep a night. But I never did then either until he told me to. And we were training together every, every day. Um, and we just became really close. We became really close. And he became this father figure in my life. And so many times in my life, I'm like holding on, right? Like I'm holding on to this idea. I'm like, God, this is what I want. I see this pattern all the time. But I, I remember this is the first time I ever saw it, that I was like, I want a dad. And when I was like, God, actually, you're enough. Like, you are enough. You fulfill this role in my life. Then he gave me, above and beyond what I could even imagine, a father figure in my track coach. We were meeting together every day, training. And that year, I became a four-time state champion in track and field. And that's what allowed me to go on to college and become a part of the 3% of foster youth to get a bachelor's degree or higher. And that accomplishment really was the foundation of every accomplishment afterwards. That day, I was given so much confidence in myself that I really had never had before. And um, if you're a Bible scholar or anything of the sorts, I'm sorry, because I got Philippians 4.13 tattooed on me. And we all, I was like, I can do all things through Christ. I can win state through Christ. That's like very taken out of context. The, the idea is that like we can suffer through Christ if you like actually read it in context. Like I'm gonna be a champion through Christ. And um, that was the real, I think that God just like marvels in our childlike faith like that. And so I had this confidence in God that I never had before. And at this point, you know, in my story, it really looked like I have gone everything I needed to have a happy ending. Like I've done it. My track coach actually took me in to his family and he became my dad, his family became my family. He's the man who walked me down the aisle at my wedding. He's who my kids call grandpa. He's still my dad today. It's who I did Christmas with. Um, every single, a lot of ki foster kids, they'll go you know, into college and they won't have anybody to come home to. They won't have anyone to, who knows like what presents to get them. Sometimes there are organizations who they'll, they'll get all these kids who had emancipated out of the foster care system and they get them general presents. But I, you know, I always had someone to come home to for the holidays. And so it's like, I had my happy ending. I'd done it. I'd overcome the trauma. I'd really harness my pain. At this point, I really thought that was true. I did think that I overcame, and I know that a lot of people look at me and they think, yep, she's made it. The work is finished. But I have learned that healing is really like peeling an infinite layered onion. As I said, my senior year, I received a full ride scholarship to run track in college. I'd recently, like, I mean, I had been saved for about a year. I had 
come into my relationship with Jesus for maybe a year, but my faith was like really, really important to me. So I told myself and I told my college coach that I did not want to waste the gift that God had given me. I wanted to give every practice smile. I didn't drink. I didn't do any, like, you know, like typically, like, typically when kids, kids go to college, they like party and stuff. I didn't do any of that because I was like, I want to do the best that I can in track. And so I'm going to start talking. I just want to bring clarity to this. I'm going to start talking about a different track coach um, because I don't want, I always want people to see my dad for who he is. And sometimes when you're talking about two of the same people with the characteristics, then you can get confused. So different track coach. I'm in college right now. And I was a short distance sprinter. I was in, in high school. I ran the 100 and 200. And then in college, my coach wanted me to run the 400, which is a really typical transition for um, someone, for a sprinter. But then my coach also um, wanted me to run cross country. And usually, you know, if you know about athletics, usually if someone's, if like a really good athlete, there's like multi, there's like a, a multi event, like a decathlon or a heptathlon. But usually when you're an athlete, your body is like made for what you're really good at. You can't really like cross what you do. And so I didn't, but I didn't argue or question my coach's authority because he promised that listening to him was what I had to do to be good. But as I was practicing, I always had a really high pain tolerance, but as I was practicing, my, my legs were in so much pain. It was my shins and my calves, and I was in more pain than I'd ever experienced in my life. And when you touched my, my shins or my calves, they were really hard, like stone. And that's like not poetic. It was like really like stone. And no matter how much pain I appeared to be in, my track coach told me that I just needed to get stronger, that I was being weak, I needed to gain strength. So by the time I arrived home that summer, I hated running. My legs hurt really bad. Even when running short distances in the sport that I loved just a year ago, I absolutely dreaded. Like it was so scary when I got like a training regimen from my track coach. I was like, oh, I don't want to go do this because I knew that my legs were going to hurt really bad. During that summer, I got a call that my college track coach was suddenly fired. I'd, I was so surprised, but they told me that he was fired due to athlete abuse. And when they said that, I was like, okay, I don't know what that means. Um, but later I found out that my other teammates had reported him for athlete abuse. And it's wild because I would have never had the words or idea that that's what was going on. I ended up transferring colleges. And as I, I, even though I transferred colleges, got a really good coach with different training. This is my third coach now. Um, my legs hurt really, really bad. So I started to do physical therapy. I was going to doctors, like specialists, and there was like no answers. We couldn't get an answer of like why my legs were feeling this way. And finally, after, I, mean, I had probably been going to doctors for like a year. Um, I had to run significantly less. And we found out that I had what's called compartment syndrome. And um, there's this fascia that aligns our whole bodies on the inside. And uh, when we exercise, our muscles swell, and our fascia usually expands with it. But when you have compartment syndrome, your fascia doesn't expand with it. And so when the doctor found out, he said, we have to do an emergency surgery. Your muscles are about to like pop out of your leg. And he said, when he cut my leg open, the muscle literally popped out. And after that, I was finally, like there was so much relief. But after the surgery, I couldn't do what God had called me to do. I couldn't run the race that God had called me to run. 
Unfortunately, relationships and stories like these are not very uncommon in my life. I have repeatedly entered into relationships with people and listened to them um, kind of put, put the idea of who I am in their hands. And I believe, you know, I was really unaware of what was happening in this relationship. And I believe this happened for three reasons. The first is that I had a pattern that I couldn't identify and I had to address it. And at the root of these behavioral patterns, there were lies and views that were skewed. The second thing is that I never changed the way I saw myself. There were all these people, my track coach, you know, he, he changed the, there were narratives about me while I was growing up in foster care that I was a bad kid, don't let her into your home, she's a bunch of trouble. Like, I had a lot of people who changed their perspective of me, who loved me, who saw me as valuable, who saw that there was a purpose and plan for my life, but I never changed my perspective of myself. I didn't see myself as worthy of love and kindness, which in large is saying I had a view of God that was wrong because when we see God in the right way, the way we see ourselves aligns with that. The third thing is I looked for my identity in other people. I was dependent upon the voice of man. I let man's voice be so loud in my life that I couldn't hear God's voice. I couldn't know what God said about me or what he said about himself because the voice and opinion of man was most important to me. And God's affirmation and my identity in him wasn't enough to me. And I thought if man accepted me, then then I would be truly accepted. Truly accepted. When we don't hear God's voice, we can't fulfill, fully fulfill, the call that God has in our life. We can't run the race he has for us. I knew every negative statistic about foster youth and those with trauma, and I was really determined to combat those all. Uh, especially that 3%, I remember being in college and being like, I gotta be, college was so hard for me, guys. That's probably why the lecture thing was really intimidating because I actually found lectures very intimidating in college. I found everything intimidating. And I always said I would never go back to school and now I am back in school. All that to say, college was hard. And I always told myself when I was in college, I, I want, it was always about the statistic. And I did everything I could to combat these negative statistics, but there's one statistic that I wish that someone would have told me that I just wasn't aware of. And it's that those who grow up with abusive parents are three times more likely to engage in relationships that mirror the relationships of their abusers. I know that that's probably like super obvious, like if you're a psychologist, that's super obvious to you. But I really needed that spelled out to me. I heard the statistic a few years ago and it finally opened my eyes to my patterns which were playing a role in me self-destructing. I mean, when people hurt us, when people abuse us, it's their responsibility, but it is our responsibility to heal. It is our responsibility to take responsibility for our own healing. And the reality was, I was self-destructing by the relationships that I continued to enter into, into my college years. When I was physically abused growing up, it was really hard, but my mom, what was really, really hard for me growing up was the verbal abuse. The verbal abuse just tore me down and destroyed me. And in my life, I placed my identity in the hands of people whose voices reflected those harsh voices of my upbringing. Researchers and psychologists will tell you that this reality, the statistic occurs because it's actually those, it's where those who are abused brains find comfort. Those who grow up in dysfunction seek dysfunction because it's what their brains are used to. Those who grow up with harsh voices return to harsh voices because it's familiar. 
Relationships that were dysfunctional and placing my identity in the hands of people who degraded me is what my brain was used to. And what I asked myself why I realized is that it's because I never changed the way I saw myself. I didn't understand that God gives us permission to say, hey, you did a good job making me. I thought that if I said that, it would be prideful. But actually, humility is simply agreeing with who God says we are, not less and not more. So I believe, I kept entering this, into these relationships because I believed I could rectify my relationship with my biological mom through other broken relationships. Because if I could prove to myself that someone like her could love me, then it would mean that I actually was lovable rather than realizing I was loved already. Maybe you didn't grow up in an abusive home or in dysfunction, but this statistic is saying something broader and deeper. It's saying that we gravitate towards what we are comfortable with, whether we want to or not, whether it's healthy for us or not. But the hope is that there is deliverance, and deliverance comes from acknowledging our patterns, shattering the lies, and breaking our dependence on anything else that we may become fully dependent on other than God. 2 Corinthians 1, 9 through 10 says this, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril that he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. I love this scripture because it's a reminder that God doesn't just save us. He keeps us. He doesn't just deliver us one time. He delivers us now and again and again and again. So it's worth asking ourselves, what might you be used to that is hurting you? What have you become so accustomed to that you don't even realize the damage it's doing? And how might you need to change the way you see yourself? Because if we want freedom and if we want intimacy with God, we have to look at our patterns of dependency. One of my favorite stories in scripture is when Jesus meets the woman at the well. He shows her immense love by meeting her where she is rather than waiting for her to meet him somewhere along the way. And he waits for his disciples to go into town. Uh, his disciples went to go into town and so he, he waits to meet with her one-on-one. -on -one. He wants this intimate time with her, undistracted. And when the woman and Jesus meet, the woman is going to get water at the well and Jesus tells her about this life-giving water that will make her thirst no more. He tells her about himself. In John 4, 13 through 15, Jesus says this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep going, coming here to draw the water. Now from here, they could have celebrated their relationship, her newfound faith in the water that makes her thirst no more, and they could have moved on. Then she could go and tell everyone of Jesus, spreading the gospel, the good news, doing the mission, fulfilling her purpose. But instead, Jesus pauses. He doesn't just send her out. He takes the conversation in a completely different direction, and Jesus acknowledges her patterns by pointing out that she has had five husbands. This woman could have had five husbands for many reasons, but in scripture, widows are typically explicitly pointed out. So we, it's not because she's a widow, and we know her patterns were destructive because Jesus addresses them when he says, go and sin no more. The woman at the well was in some kind of destructive and sinful cyclical patterns where she pursued relationships, hoping and believing that they could quench her thirst to be cherished, 
heal her broken heart, but those relationships likely took a toll on her, similarly to how fetching the water did. If you don't understand the toll that getting water could have taken on her, it is estimated that young girls in developing countries walk an average of four miles a day to get water. And with the country and culture similar in this, in this Bible story to developing countries today, it can be assumed that the woman at the well also walked miles to retrieve water. And that walk would have made her more thirsty. The walk depleted her even more. To not be dehydrated from carrying the heavy water and walking a long distance with it, she had to go and get more water. Getting the water at the well made her need even more. So it was endless. And so her getting water put her in a pattern that made her return back to the well that did not suffice. And this is why Jesus pointed to the water that he knew could make her cup overflow. So she no longer had to keep walking the long distances. He was pointing to himself as the answer so she could stop searching for human beings unable to remedy her wounds. Jesus' intent with the woman here is the same intent that he has with us. It is not to pick at us or offer us prescriptive fixings by addressing our patterns. Rather, Jesus comes to us intimately, one-on-one, to let us know that despite our destructive patterns, he chooses us, he loves us, and he wants to address it. Even the best worldly things, like accomplishments, the work that we do, creating the life that we didn't have, does not suffice. Those things eventually all fade, but Jesus remains, and he chooses us to provide for and love in a way that no one else can. He wants us to see that our patterns, he wants us to see our patterns so he can fill us and heal us with his life-giving water. Okay, I'm going to ask another personal question. No one was in jail here, but has anyone ever had their belly button pierced? (laughs) Just me. Great. So when I was 16, I was, in the foster care, I was in the foster care system at this time, and when you go do anything like this, like go get your belly button pierced, you have to have a caseworker's approval. Uh, but I went on a visit with my mom, and you're like, even though she's my biological mom, I'm not in her custody, so she like, can't take me to go get a tattoo or like, get my belly button pierced, but I convinced her to take me to get my belly button pierced. And uh, the, the piercer, he gave me like these aftercare instructions, and they say, um, clean the wound, the wound out with pure water, with purified water. So you have to like go and get like bottled water from the store, or you have to like boil the water that you have in your home. And I was like, no, nobody has time for that. And I know more than this piercer. So I'm gonna try rubbing alcohol because that like that that kills germs, that heals wounds. I remember, my mom, I remember like I was spraying my knee, she'd be like, rubbing alcohol, you know what I mean? So that's what I did, and then it got infected like really fast. So I had to take it out, I was so sad, but I really wanted to be among the cool girls. None of you guys are a part of the cool girls, because none of you guys got your belly butt pierced, it's just me, I'm the coolest girl in the room. I really wanted to be among the cool girls, so I convinced my mom to take me again, and then he gave me the aftercare instructions, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna use the clean water. And it healed, like, within a week. I've had babies now. I don't have my belly button pierced anymore. That would be wild. <laughs> but it healed so quickly. And I tell you this story because another powerful ability of pure water that we use in the life-giving water of Jesus is that it is pure. Something that is not noted directly in this scripture, in this Bible story, is that when pure water is poured over open wounds, it heals them. 
washing out infection, but maintaining healthy bacteria for efficient and effective growth of skin to come back together, cells to rejuvenate. Jesus's pure water has those qualities too. He heals us. So Jesus points us to his life-giving water because it fulfills us and because when we become fully dependent on it for quenching our thirst, the water heals us. When Jesus acknowledges the woman at the well's brokenness, he does so with a desire for her to seek healing to take water in all of its abundance to heal her hurt before she steps into the mission God has called her to. After Jesus and the woman understood and addressed her patterns, the Samaritan woman at the well becomes the first Christian preacher in John's gospel. Not the first women preacher, the first Christian preacher in John's gospel. But before she could do that, before Jesus sent her off, he chose to address her patterns of dependency on things that did not suffice, Second thing he did, he explains himself to her so she can have a right view of him as an all-knowing healer. And the third thing he did was he changed her perspective of herself by simply explaining who he is. And suddenly, she had the authority and confidence to do what God had called her to do. Jesus calls us into self-reflection and responsibility and honesty before he allows us to step deeper into our purpose. And if you're feeling stuck in your calling or vocation or purpose, it's time to ask these three questions, and I'll say them twice. What pattern needs to break? Number two is what lie about myself or God needs to be shattered? And number three is what am I dependent on that I may use to numb myself, but it's not really fulfilling me in the way that Christ can. Number one, what patterns need to break? What lie about myself or God needs to be shattered? And what am I dependent on that I may use to numb myself, but it's not really fulfilling me in the way that Christ can? I don't know what pattern might be Maybe just, you know, throwing a wrench in things. Maybe it's not destroying you. Maybe just throwing a little wrench in things. Or what perspective of yourself might be just tearing you down bit by bit. What dependency might be eating at you. But I knew, they do know that Jesus is safe enough to address it with. One of the most healing parts of my journey has been being able to tell my story. I've witnessed how the worst parts of my life um, just can be made good. I've learned that there's a lot of victory and vulnerability. So this is when we're going to grab the popsicle stick, okay? And what we're going to do is on this popsicle stick, you're going to write down maybe the pattern, the lie, the dependency, the behavior that's holding you back. Maybe from knowing God more intimately, maybe from stepping deeper into your calling. What is that thing in your life that has continued to just show itself as harmful? For me, I would write codependency. I'm going to write it right now. So just take some time to write it, and we'll be here for like 30 seconds, so you guys can kind of think about it. Because last time, my assistant's here, and last time I shared this, she said I did it too fast. She said I didn't give time, people time to think, so I'm trying to give you time to think. <laughs> Now, there are many uh, ways to heal trauma in our, in our bodies, in our minds. 
um, there's this book. It's called The Body Keeps a Score. And it says that you know, some ways that we can heal our trauma, different modalities of therapy, like talk therapy or art therapy, play therapy. Um, another way is through medication. But the author of that book says, the most powerful, efficient, and effective way to heal trauma is to experience, have experiences that directly contradict the traumatic experience. So my entire parenting philosophy is to create really great memories. <laughs> So that my kids just, I'm like, I'm just contradicting anything that you might go through that's bad. Like, just, we're just going to have a really great time all the time. But one of the most healing things, one of the things that's contradicted my, my trauma, when I grew up in the foster care system, I was, yeah, I would try and advocate for myself, and I was silenced, and now, like, I get to share my story, and people hear me, and people call me a truth teller, and they listen, and they invite me. Like, the people invite me to speak, you know, I was kicked out, and now people invite me. These are things that contradict the traumatic experience. And so I'm always thinking about what experiences can I create for people that uh, they would just remember. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break the stick. We're going to break, we're going to break the lie, the pattern, the dependency. And uh, I want you guys to listen. We're gonna, I'm going to say one, two, three, and then we're all going to break it at the same time. So I want you guys to listen. Are you guys ready? Ready, one, two, three. And I think when we have like these moments, maybe, you know, we know, right? Healing is like peeling an infinite layered onion. Healing does not happen in a single moment of breaking a popsicle stick, but there is healing that happens when we remember symbolism and we remember moments. And so even if you've been working on something, this can be a symbol of something deeper, um, or this can be your beginning of, of breaking. I'm going to pray for us to end. Is that cool? Okay. <laughs> God, uh, I just thank you for being so safe that we can address our patterns with you. I pray that um, if there are people in this room who really had something to break, that you would just be with them as they walk out, that you know, sometimes we can hear something and we can be like, yes, that is shattered, I'm done, but we don't know how to carry it out. We need discipleship, we need people to walk alongside us. So God, I just pray that the people that it's on their hearts to really uh, break something down, that you would set the right people alongside of them to hold their hand and walk with them through it. And if there's anyone in this room that is that person that's going to walk alongside that another person, just open their eyes, soften their hearts um, towards discipleship, towards mentorship. Uh, God, I just thank you for, for the glory that you have had in all of our stories. There are so many stories in this room in which you have entered into and and brought healing, and brought hope, um, and just brought so much redemption. And we know that the story isn't, hasn't ended, that you are continuing to bring deliverance again and again. We praise you for saving us and for keeping us. In Jesus' name, amen. That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, she's going to come back up here in a minute to 
respond to questions, so I hope some of you uh, either in the house or online have some questions to share. I'm going to let her rest her voice a moment uh, while I make a few quick announcements. Um, the first is, uh, let's see, what are we in the middle of November now? So we'll let you get through Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, but then we will come back again in February. So the next event uh, in this series, this season is on February 8th featuring Margaret Feinberg, another author. Um, She's talking about butchers, bakers, and fresh food makers. So I hope you'll join us for that. If you would like to be alerted to our events, you can sign up for emails on our website or follow us on social media. Uh, we'd love to have you come back uh, for that next event if you can. Um, I also want to say some words of thanks. Uh, for 21 years now, these events have always been free and open to the public. We have never once had to charge people to come to them, something I'm really grateful for. We can only do that because of a whole lot of generous sponsors, and they are listed here, and I hope we haven't left anyone out. Um, I'll lift up uh, by name our corporate sponsors, Crossroads Financial Group, Cressa, Ulrich Real Estate, Mally Design, Productivity Inc., Rapid Packaging, and Mastercraft Labels, and then we have a whole lot of individual sponsors. Again, uh, for more than two decades, uh, these people uh, and, and many others like them uh, have been supportive of all of these events. Many of them are here tonight, uh, and will you join me now in thanking them? Um, I also want to thank Jeff Elstead. I always thank Jeff, our guitarist, for giving us some music before and after, so thank you, Jeff. All right, now, I don't always do this. I'm going to lift up uh, two or three things uh, that you can participate in if you want. I feel very strongly about this. The Faith in Life Lecture Series is not a bait and switch. Okay? Can you all nod your heads that I've just said that? We do this as an absolute gift to the community. There is no expectation that you will ever set foot in this church again uh, at all. We're glad to do it as a gift. That said, an invitation, if you'd like. Uh, we have a, a book club coming up next Tuesday. We, we do this throughout the year, but next Tuesday it's actually uh, based on, Tory, uh, uh, on Tory's book, Fostered. So that's Tuesday, November 16th. Um, you can talk to me or another staff person afterwards if you'd like to learn more about that, or you can go to spdlc.org slash register to learn more about it. You can join that digitally if you want. You don't have to come in person. Um, and also, I will lift up, this is a brand new series that we have here at St. Philip Deacon called the Herald Music Series. Um, and in December, we have two back-to-back -back concerts a week apart. Uh, both of them are here in the sanctuary. One is with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. That's on Friday, December 8th. And then uh, the following Friday, December 15th, is the Cantus Vocal Ensemble. Both of those are ticketed events. You can learn more about that at heraldmusic.com. And again, we're privileged to use this beautiful space for uh, wonderful events like that. So join us for those if you would like. Um, okay, I think those are the, all the announcements I needed to make. So, Tori, do you want to come back up for some? I, I'm hoping someone's going to come up and ask a few questions. So uh, the floor is yours again. Great, thanks. Um, I like to tell people when I do Q&As that this is my full-time work, and I think that sometimes uh, when you hear my life story, you can be like, you can question the questions that you have. Um, like, is that too personal? But I'm an open book, and I'm happy to learn alongside of you guys. So ask anything you want to. Hey. Hi, Philip. 
Hi, Tori. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to thank you for your story. And you're, you're so brave. And I'm reading the book, and it's wonderful. And I want to tell you that our newspaper, I don't know if anyone's shown you this, but they're doing a, a series, and it's called A Cycle of Abuse. Mm. And the, the young girl featured in this newspaper, I want to give to you so you can lift her up, because her, she is so brave, too. Mm. And she has a similar story that so many people did not listen to her. And now she is healing, and she's going to college. Wow, praise God. So I wanted to tell you that, yeah. and thank you. Can I take, can take it? it? I'll take it. Here. Okay, perfect. Thank you. That's so sweet. Hey. What's your thank name? You. My name is Tamara. Tamara hi, Tamara. So, hi. Thank you for your... Um, presentation, lecture. It was a lecture, so oh, okay. it was awesome. Um, Academia. Call me so, an academic. <laughs> so would you ever consider bringing a foster child into your home? Yes, ma'am. My husband and I have fostered, and we're currently foster parents. We have a 15-year-old uh, foster daughter, two biological children, um, a three- and five-year-old. And my biological sister lives with me now as well. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you, Tori. Um, I'm just curious what it's like to embark on being a mother after your childhood experiences. Yeah, well, I think being a mom is hard for anyone. Um, but I, I think that something that I've been thinking and reflecting on lately, you know, I've always had this idea that I want my children to have everything that I didn't have. I want to create a family. Um, the family that I didn't have create a life for my kids, the ones that I, the, the life that I didn't have. And I think about a lot when I'm parenting, um, you know, be the mom that three-year-old Tori need, be the mom that five-year-old Tori need, be the mom that 15-year-old Tori needs. Um, and you can, like, do that. You can create all of those things. But, again, like, it just still doesn't mean that, that you're healed. So... I also have the, the child, I, child I didn't mention because he's, he's an adult and he's not in our home right now. I was talking about the people in our home. I also have an adopted adult son. Um, and when he came, he was our first um, child who wasn't biologically ours who came to live with us. And I just, this is like really vulnerable, guys. But I, I remember being like, I just want, you know, he, he was just like kind of push me away. And he, he wanted to live with us, but he didn't want to, like, be a part of our family. And I just remember being like, why don't you love me? Like, I just want to be loved. And, like, we do not love to be loved. We love, like, that, it, that actually, that's not the definition of love. Like, you literally can't love to be loved. It wouldn't be love. We love for the sake of love. We love despite the suffering and hurt that we experience because of love. And so, um, yeah, I've been thinking about, about just like how you can give your kids maybe everything you didn't have, but like there's still just this, all these layers of, of healing. And he, 
was the, the first um, that really showed me, was like a reflection of myself. And I think that all my kids are that in a different, different sense, different degree. They're all teaching me about myself, um, about the ways that I need to become more patient, more loving, more kind. Um, so yeah, I think that being a mom, I just try and be really humble. And I apologize to my kids a lot. <laughs> I, um, I had, I, my husband and I both come from families that didn't apologize. And we both, you know, something that you want when no one apologizes to you is you really want apologies. So kind of like just a thing that we've agreed upon is we're just going to be parents that apologize a lot. And so we say sorry a lot to our kids. I do have a couple of online questions here. Um, the first one is you haven't mentioned the fact that you, you are Miss Univer Mrs. Universe, excuse me. How did you end up participating in that event or maybe said differently what motivated you to participate in it? Well, I think this kind of goes back to being a mom um, a little bit. I was um, fostering a sibling group of three at the time with, along with our two biological children. So we had five kids, three and under. And it was the stupidest thing I've ever done. I would not recommend it. Like, people were like, you're amazing. And I'm like, no, I'm dumb. Like, this is, not, <laughs> this is a bad idea. And I was just like, I just, I mean, you know, when you're like a mom and you're doing that with all those littles, you have boogers and poop all over you all the time. And then you're getting up and you're not showering because you don't have time to shower. I mean, it was just, it was a hot mess, guys. And I was like, then someone presented the opportunity of pageantry. And I was like, oh, pageantry is superficial. Like, I wouldn't do that. Um, money can be spent in a better way. I'm in ministry. No. Uh, but then I just kept laying my head down on my pillow at night. And I was like, man, it would be really nice to take a shower and do my makeup. And maybe if I had a I'm really competitive. So maybe if I had a competition to do it, I would do it. <laughs> so that was really it. I was like... Um, I, I, I just, I'm competitive. Uh, it was, I love learning. I thought it sounded, there is a whole culture in pageantry, and I thought, let's go learn about this. It was kind of like an, if I'm honest, it was kind of like an experiment. I know that's not the, like, awesome pageant answer that I should be saying, but um, that's really, that's the real answer. And um, I personally wouldn't let my daughter do pageantry after doing pageantry, so that's what I learned. <laughs> Another online question is, how did you discover your gift for writing or your interest in writing? I actually have journals filled from when I was a teenager, partially because, again, like when I was living in my group home, a lot of them were from when I was living in my group home. We just couldn't go a lot of places, and so I would just write, and I would document my days, and I just loved writing. I just always loved writing. Um, I think when I was with therapists, sometimes what they would do is like if I couldn't talk, they would be like, you wanna write it out and then read it, or do you wanna like write it out and then I can read it? And so I think that was also um, a tool that I used to express my emotions and process my story. I had good therapists, really, if that was a part of it. Um, and then when I became an adult, I started just telling my story. I think, you know, I started to tell my story because I really wanted to encourage other people, but I do think that there was this you know, unconscious thing happening that I was telling my story because it was bringing me healing just like it was when I was a kid. Um, I didn't like anticipate it to do that, but that's what it's done. So I think that that is how I've, I've fallen in love with it. It's helped me. I think it's like God's 
gift to me to help me to help me see more of him. Oh, okay. Hello. Um, I'm Darcy, and I thank you so much for sharing tonight. I'm curious about how you met your husband, what he's like. Mm -hmm. Is he also a believer, and was he a believer when you met him? Yes. Um, my husband and I went to college together. I didn't meet him until my senior year. Um, we went to Hillsdale College, and we graduated in 2018. Met him my senior year. What is my husband like? Um, well, he grew, up, he grew up in a family that was very different than mine, which was, I think, very what drew me. Honestly, I think his family, a lot of his family drew me to him a lot. Um, he grew up as a pastor's kid. He grew up in a very conservative, traditional home. Um, his mom homeschooled all five of the kids throughout their entire upbringing. They were really close, tight-knit. Um, and they, I mean, I just remember like sitting in church services with them and like the pastor would begin to say a scripture and they would all be like saying it on their lips and I thought that was really cool. Um, I just, there, there was just these things that I think it was a lot of their like religiosity, Christianity um, that drew me towards them. Yeah, my husband was a believer um, is a, and still is a believer. What is he like? Um, much more tempered than me. Yeah. Um, he's a good man and he does not just you know, let me do ministry. He encourages me and lifts me up. He's a good man. Hmm. We homeschool our kids together. That's fun. Oh, while she's walking up, I'll ask another online question. Uh, someone says, can you ask her about her current relationship with her mom? And then we'll go to you. Yes, um, me, and my, my bio, me and my biological mom's relationship has always been the same. So even when I was in foster care, like, I knew that I was never going to return to my mom the second time around, but I would still like go, I had the option to like go into visits with her and I always wanted to. I think, so when I was living in my group home, there was, we, like I said, we did group therapy. And there was a girl named Jen. Everybody didn't like Jen. Um, she, I remember one time she like threw this picture of like a frame picture of me and my sister out the window, like from like three stories up. Like nobody liked Jen. And then one time we were in group therapy. Group, she was just mean. Jen was mean. She was also young. She was like 12, but she was like a bully. We were sitting in a group, and Jen started to tell her story. And a lot of the things that she did was done to her, and even, but even worse. And her story was really similar to pieces of my mom's story, and that was the first time that I saw my mom as a little girl. And that was the first time that I could, I think that I started to forgive my mom. And so I, I've always done visits with my mom. I've always tried to stay in contact with her. I love her, like I really love my mom. My mom did her best with the resources that she had. And my mom had far less resources than I had. Like, I mean, I just can't imagine who my mom would be if she had the community, if she had the track coach, if she had the church, if she had the therapy that I had access to at such young ages. Um, so, all that to say, I think all those factors have made my, my heart soft towards my mom, and I usually go back to her, like, my, our, this is, it's kind of like cycl the cyclical thing, where I'm like, I'm going to have a relationship with my mom, and I'm going to talk to her, and like, things are going really well. And then um, my mom is diagnosed with pretty severe mental illness, so she will say mean things or blow up, and then I'm like, okay, I have to put boundaries up, 
and then I don't talk to her for a little bit, and then I open back up, and then the cycle happens again. And nothing changes, and I'm okay with that. Um, I think that um, my, my job is just to love her, but only Christ can change her, and I have a lot of peace with that. Hi, Tori. Thank you so much. <clears throat> um, I kind of was going to ask that same question, but I was also wondering how your sister did uh, since she was so much younger than you when she went into the foster system and you were not together, and also how you have healed from the abuse from men that you went through in these situations. Yeah. Um, how do you heal from the abuse? Again, I think processing it. Um, and a huge thing is just seeing like that the worst parts of my life, like the abuse, being silenced, being labeled like so wrongly, so many of the like, so when we tell our stories to empath empathetic listeners, so like if you're sitting across from someone and you're telling your story from an empathetic to an empathetic listener, there are literally like wires in our brain that begin to change the way we see our stories. And so my entire job is telling my story to people who shake their heads and listen to me and then like tell me that I'm brave. And so over and over and over again, I have seen that the literally the worst parts of my life, the abuse has been redeemed. And I, I mean, I get messages on social media, emails through my website nearly every day of people saying, because we heard your story, we got involved in foster care, because I'm a former foster youth because I heard your story or because I've been abused and I heard your story, I'm finding healing, I've come to Christ, and it's just like, I mean, that's where the healing com comes from. Like, it's just like, oh, you know, the Genesis 50, 20, um, Joseph, he's talking to his brothers and he said, what you did to harm me, God intended for good, the saving of many lives. And I, I think that that's kind of like, um, just like a heart cry that has healed me. Like what they have done to harm, harm me, God has used to save many lives, to heal people. Um, that's just so healing. You know, you guys listening to me is, is so healing. Um, and just, I think, you know, the grace of God, knowing who he is and knowing what he says about me. Because right, a lot of it is voices, like these voices the things that my mom said about me, like I said in the talk, like were so hard for me for so long. Those were the narratives that I continued to listen to up into my adulthood. And so to understand, to be in scripture and understand like this is what God says about me. To have Christian mentors um, say that it's okay to believe um, and see yourself as a good creation that God made um, you know, being able to hear those things and see those things in scripture over and over again. All those, all those things have played a role. Okay, I'm gonna say one more thing. There's just been, healing is so, it takes so much. It takes so much, I think, to heal. And I think the, the last thing I'll say is community. Um, I just know that there's a lot of people who have left the church, who don't wanna go to church, and because they've been hurt by the church. And I've been hurt by the church, you know. I have heard that because I'm a woman, I shouldn't be teaching scripture, I shouldn't be speaking the way that I do. And it's super hard, because I'm like, like, I just want to go and tell, I just want to advance the gospel. 
I want to tell people of what God has done in my life. And so to hear those things is really hard, but the reality is, like, we, we can be hurt in the church, but it is also the church that we heal in. And I think just being in community and sticking with people, showing myself and showing others that, you know, that we can have relationships despite hardship um, has been really healing. Because what, what a lot of foster youth go through is just people leaving all the time. And so to challenge myself to stay when things are hard and then watch other people stay when things are hard. Um, and then when people don't stay, not seeing it as rejection or taking it personal, but seeing it as God's protection, seeing it as like just like it is like God's will. Um, and it's not always something that I need to take personal or be a reflection of me. Those are all, there's so many, those are all the things. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> um, I do have another question online. Um, you've talked a lot about mental health. Um, it's, a, it's a big initiative here in this congregation and I know many congregations because we're aware of the challenges of it um, and access to mental health resources and so forth. So this question is, who connected you to therapists along the way? Was it part of the foster care required program or did you seek it out? Yeah, so when I was in the foster care system, it was mandated. So um, it's pretty like, it's pretty typical when you're a foster parent, you have to go through the motions to make sure that your ch child is in therapy. Um, so your foster child is in therapy. So I was in therapy. We have to assure that the children in our care are in therapy typically. That's pretty typical. And then when I went to college, uh, my college offered free, free therapy. Um, it like was paid through your tuition. And so um, I did that in college and then I've just continued to always seek it out myself. Um, and not always something is like necessarily wrong, but I think that there's been um, just, it's been really helpful to have someone that just asks me good questions and who can sometimes see what I don't see in myself. Okay, if there are no more questions on the floor, um, I'll ask the final one online, uh, which I'm assuming is a bit of a softball. Um, and then after she's done brilliantly answering that, if you all could just be quiet for a moment, then I'll come up and say some nice things, and then you can applaud widely after I do that, okay? Wait, do I, I have a question. Yes. Do I stay up here? Yeah, yeah, stay up there. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure I was you have doing to stay the up right there. thing. You have to stay up there because I'm going to come up and say nice things about you and thank oh. you. It's going right. to be like when people sing happy birthday to you. Sure. <laughs> we could do that too if we wanted to. <laughs> anyway, here's the softball question. Tell me more about the Beloved Initiative program. Oh, that's so nice. Uh, the Beloved Initiative is a 501c3 that I started in 2020 after COVID and after I had a baby and I had no idea what I was doing with it. But now... Um, we host retreats all over the nation for survivors of foster care, abuse, human trafficking, um, survivors of just any kind of traumatic experience or experiences. And um, we gather in a home together and we bring speakers and authors and survivors, like, like survivors who are doing the same work as me, advocating for other survivors, advocating for mental health who are authors and speakers. Um, and first, we teach and educate the women on how to tell their stories in ways that empower them 
and bring them healing, right? Because like I've said, like telling my story has been one of the most healing things that has ever happened to me, but also telling our stories can be really scary. Um, and sometimes there are organizations who can bring survivors in and have them tell their stories to benefit the organization. There's no benefit to the survivor. The survivor's not quite ready to tell their stories. And then in turn, it hurts the survivor even more. So we walk the girls through through all of these. The women, they're not girls. They are women. They are not like, bro I, I say that because like these women are not broken, broken children. They are like women, actively adults, actively healing and like striving for a whole and beautiful life. And they're like, I mean, I, I can get emotional just talking about them. They're some of the most amazing women that I have ever interacted with, and I'm just always so honored to do these retreats with them. Um, so we do these retreats, and um, yeah, that's the, 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 I think the fruit that has really come out of these retreats is the community that, so the, these women, they're all surviving. It's so wild, because I get to do this work, and sometimes like I'm doing this work at a church, but other times I'm doing this work with all former foster youth who are doing advocacy. There's actually a lot of me, it's, in, it's incredible, who are doing advocacy, who have overcome, who have incredible stories, who speak. I mean, there's, there's a lot of us, and more than you, what you would think. And so, you know, there, but there are these survivors who come to these retreats and they say, I've never sat in a room with another survivor that was not on drugs, that was not on alcohol, that was not having some kind of dependency that they couldn't overcome. Now I'm in a room with survivors who are like me and I'm hearing their stories and it's really healing and the fruit of that has been the community. They stick together, they're so close. Um, the, the retreat that I'm actually, the, the conference that I'm hosting on Saturday, we have a group of, I mean, they're from all over and we have a whole group coming to the, the, the conference. So the community, the way that they stick together, the friendships that are built have been really amazing, um, but also just so, and we bring um, an on-staff therapist. There's an on-staff therapist there the entire time that also guides them through telling their stories in really similar ways that I learned how to tell mine um, with my therapist. It wouldn't be the end of the world if you applauded now, but in the past I've learned that then I have to get you to quiet down and then you want to applaud again. Anyway. Thank you all for being here. Thanks to those of you who joined us online. We're so delighted you came out on a windy night in November. Um, Tori, we're so grateful that you came. It was beautiful, and we have a little gift for you. Thank it's a piece you. of granite that says, with thanks to Tori Hope Peterson for bringing faith to life. We're so grateful. Thank, thank, you. thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Yeah.